Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom where I try to cut through the BS and the smoke and mirrors and lay out exactly what the clowns are trying to do to you and what is coming next. I'm also active on Twitter and Substack, so I hope to see you there. The debt ceiling showdown is getting spicy as Senate Republicans yesterday said they would not allow an increase without massive cuts to government spending. Meanwhile, Treasury Secretary Yellen said Joe Biden's threat to use a Civil War era amendment to force a ceiling break would spark a, quote, constitutional crisis. Now, if you're just tuning in, the background here is that the U.S. government is broke. It spends like a drunken sailor with stolen credit cards and a gambling problem. And it's about to break the $31.4 trillion debt ceiling, which it's legally obligated not to break. Instead of doing the right thing and just stopping deficits, they are instead doing everything possible to frog march small government skeptics into swindling another couple trillion from the American people. Now, in the U.S., all new laws start in the House, and raising the debt ceiling requires a new law. So the House Republicans passed a new ceiling to cover the next year, but they required about $4.8 trillion in spending cuts over the next 10 years. Yesterday, enough Senate Republicans announced that they agree, and they'll only approve a ceiling raise with similarly big cuts to spending. So what happens next? Yellen says the limit could hit as early as three weeks, which is June 1st, at which point they would have to stop the deficit. Remember, they still collect taxes. A debt ceiling just means they can't do deficits anymore, meaning about a 22% cut in spending, $1.4 trillion deficit on a $6.2 trillion budget. Now, I mentioned the other day that history suggests strongly that they will indeed keep paying interest on the existing debt, since governments always pay their investors first, because otherwise they wouldn't be able to have any more deficits in the future. The investors would not buy them. Now, politically, the American people would revolt if they cut Social Security or Medicare. So that's about $2.2 trillion out of the remaining $5.6 trillion. So that leaves $3.4 to absorb $1.4 trillion of deficit reduction. There are two ways to get there. One is a 40% across-the-board reduction on everything from foreign aid to military spending to bike paths to nowhere named after Congress things. Or they could just drop all the crap government shouldn't be doing in the first place and only keep what's actually needed. Now, 40% does sound like a lot. It certainly is to the bureaucrats grown fat on the backs of the people, making twice what we make and retiring at 42 but for perspective, Elon Musk just cut 90% of Twitter, and it seems to work better. Many have argued we should try that with the government. Also remember that a 40% across-the-board cut would simply take us back to 2004 levels of federal spending, even adjusting for inflation. So it's very doable, even if Washington claims it's the end of the world. As for Biden's constitutional crisis 14th Amendment threat— the short of it is that by elevating the debt to quasi-religious status, it would also implicitly outlaw both the Federal Reserve and fractional reserve banking since inflation is a soft default. That's a conversation I would very much enjoy. So, like, do it, Joe. Uh, of course, now, when it comes to Washington, the most likely outcome is also the most disappointing outcome. So expect lots of posturing, shell gaming, gaslighting, and unless a miracle happens, an acceleration of our nation's fiscal suicide. 
Yesterday, the Fed put out their latest sluice survey that gives an x-ray to what's happening inside banks. And it is grim. The sluice senior loan officer opinion survey measures how tight credit is, which is a proxy for how the economy is doing. And most important, it tells us where are the risks. In the survey, bankers reported dramatically tighter standards, meaning they're hogging cash, despite weaker demand for loans from commercials and industrials, meaning those companies are afraid to invest at these rates. Now, tightening was sharpest in the commercial real estate sector, a regional bank mainstay, which is being gutted, especially in the big cities where rents and values are plunging. I've got a video on this a few weeks ago, how the rise of crime and remote work means people don't want to pay a million dollars to dodge poop and bricks to the head and are decamping to happier climbs, leaving trillions in empty office and retail space for banks to lose money on. In raw numbers, the sluice showed three out of four loan officers are tightening lending, and four out of five are actually increasing spreads. So they're charging more for loans, even on top of their soaring cost of borrowing freshly printed money from the Fed. Presumably, the banks are charging higher spreads to cover both higher risk and to help staunch the bleed to money markets. The end result is starving the productive sector of capital, a key driver of a serious recession. Of concern for those regional banks, standards tightened hardest for the housing and developers that make up a big chunk of their assets, coming to roughly 85% of officers tightening. Meanwhile, of concern for all of us, lending was loosest on on consumer loans, credit cards, and installment credit. Given credit cards just passed 24% annual interest, that's according to Forbes, there is a reason bankers get along so well with gangsters. This is painting a picture of banks swapping out solid loans, building real things, for usurious predation on people buying groceries on installment. Now, none of this bodes well for the banks. Real estate loans are $5.5 trillion of bank assets, while business loans are another $3 trillion. So that's eight and a half trillion of exposure set against the total capital buffer in U.S. banks of, according to a recent Stanford study, between 200 and 500 billion. So 20 to 40 times smaller as a tiny sliver of assets, perhaps at this point, no assets at all. If, quote, unrealized losses were accurately reported, trying to carry eight and a half trillion in rotting loans. Note that's not even counting another two trillion in potentially subprime consumer loans, including those 24% credit cards, plus another four trillion of government bonds, which have been road hard and put away wet by the Fed's rate hikes and are now in the crosshairs of the debt ceiling standoff. Toss in several trillion more that banks gamble in currently volatile financial markets to try and window dress ahead of the reaper. And there are a whole lot of plates spinning. The only thing keeping them up there is money printing, which between the Fed's fear of inflation and the soaring federal deficits driving that inflation could stop at any moment. Monthly inflation numbers are coming out today, meaning we get to find out how much of our life savings, paycheck, and grocery budget is left after the Fed and its pet banks are done with it. Markets are expecting the same bad news we've had all year, that inflation is not going anywhere. 
Specifically, it's expecting 0.4% on the month, which is an annual inflation rate of 5%, meaning you lose $50 on every thousand you make and $50 on every thousand you have. Now, 5% is about two and a half times the Fed's alleged inflation target, which is pretty pathetic after the most aggressive rate hikes in 50 years, actually the most reckless rate hikes going by bank collapses. So what is coming next? The main drivers of inflation right now are one, federal spending, two, the bank crisis, and three, the Fed itself. In short, expect federal spending to drive inflation up, expect the bank crisis to push it lower before hitting us down the road with higher inflation, and expect the Fed to run up and down the field like a helicopter parent at a soccer game, screaming at the umpire and shooting fresh trillions at anything that makes a sudden move. Now, taking each in turn, if, as expected, nothing comes from the debt ceiling play fight, the trillion-dollar federal spending spree keeps grinding along, as allegedly small government Republicans settle back to their traditional role as uniparty sidekick, fleecing the people so long as they get their crony crumbs and foreign wars. Next is the banks, where despite the Fed and Treasury dumping trillions of your money into bailouts, we can actually see net deflation. This is because money is flooding out of banks to money markets faster than bailouts are pouring it in. And thanks to the magic of fractional reserve, that flood effectively cancels most of the dollars that moved. Banks cannot Xerox them into more fake dollars. As for the bailout money itself, going by 2008, the banks will sit on it instead of lending it out, savoring their stolen goods instead of letting you have a ride. Bad for the economy, bad for credit, super for the bankers. Now, in theory, if that flood of bank depositors fleeing collapsing banks paying 0.1% for not collapsing money markets paying 5%, if that flood gets big enough, we could even see deflation for a minute. But don't get excited. Stuff will not actually get cheap because any modern central bank that sees a falling price cranks up the money printers to 11 to gobble it all up. Plus, unless this is the end of fractional reserve banking, sadly, it is probably not. All of that money will eventually come back to be Xeroxed once more. As always, inflation's a ratchet. Put it all together, and short-term inflation is a tug-of-war between big spenders in Washington and money-losing banks, all in the backdrop that we've still got a big hunk of inflation saved up in the system, like a golf ball in a snake. Given that they printed 35% of the money But so far, we've only actually enjoyed 16% of that in inflation. So there's a double-digit chunk of inflation waiting for us, even if they don't do something stupid, which they certainly will. In the 2008 financial crisis, America caught the flu, but Europe went on the ventilator. It looks like it is happening again as our banking crisis is now spreading to Europe. In fact, European banks could be in worse shape than U.S. banks, which is a problem since European banks are a much bigger part of their economy and are the lifeline for most European companies. So far, the euro pain has been out of the headlines since the first wave of this bank crisis was directly from rate hikes, and the European Central Bank did not hike as hard or as fast as the Fed. But the next waves are likely to be even bigger than here in the U.S. First, the news. Sweden's biggest landlord, the unlikely named Sam's Hall's Big Nads Bolliget, 
apologies to my Swedish listeners, is crashing after a cut to junk by S&P. I was followed by a suspension of their dividend and a 90% plunge in their stock price. This is a problem, both because 60% of Swedes rent, landlord companies are a big deal, but it's a much bigger deal because Sam's Hall were seen as a canary in Europe's coal mine, raising questions about commercial real estate across Europe, and now that canary is going down. I've got a couple of videos talking about crashing commercial real estate here in the U.S., but keep in mind the bank collapses we've seen in America so far have just been from that first wave from melting treasuries. So more waves are coming, not just from commercial real estate, but from, from consumer credit, home mortgages, small business loans, and of course, the trillions that banks gamble in jittery financial markets. Now, broadly speaking, European banks have all of those same exposures, and European banks fall harder because total assets in the EU banking system are about $28.5 trillion compared to roughly $23 trillion in the U.S., of course, the U.S. economy is much bigger. We're about 50% bigger than Europe because socialism and now suicidal green policies. So European banks are roughly twice as big in terms of their economy than here in the U.S., and they absolutely dominate lending. Given that scale, every problem American banks have is likely worse in Europe. The commercial real estate, consumer loans, industrials, and small business loans. Even sovereign bonds could be worse in Europe, given that much of it is managed by clowns who already almost killed their banks a decade ago. Now, next month, we're going to see a big credit crunch for European banks as $500 billion in pandemic-era central bank handouts, in theory, have to be paid back. This could be impossible for many banks, forcing them to sell impaired assets that could, as in the U.S., expose the holes in their balance sheet. For example, in Italy, the paybacks actually exceed the extra liquidity of the entire banking sector. With inflation currently running 7% in Europe, the ECB may balk at printing yet more bailout trillions, which would force European banks to slash lending, something we are already seeing here in the U.S. Now, given that EU growth is already forecast at 0.3% for this year, that's roughly population growth, this would almost certainly throw Europe into a recession, and that could potentially be a deep recession going by new German industrial numbers showing an 11% collapse in orders on the month, which is the worst since the height of the COVID lockdowns. And so as Europe joins America, Japan, and even China in downturns and potential financial collapse, it is looking like the next year could be a very rough one across the world. New data says bankruptcies are exploding up 216% on the year, higher than the 2008 crisis and almost double the COVID lockdowns. Now, this is all before the recession even officially begins. In fact, Joe Biden's last word was that this economy is, quote, strong as hell, which the news tells us he ventured, quote, while munching a waffle cone, not a joke. Now, last week, the S&P reported its tally of U.S. companies going under hit 236 in the first four months alone, more than double last year. A separate study by UBS found $10 million plus bankruptcies are now running almost eight per week, which is almost double the peak level 
of the lockdowns. Now, the problem here is the worst of the bankruptcies usually don't come early in a recession. They come a year or two in. Yet here we are seeing them before the show even begins. For example, in 2008, we saw a slight rise in bankruptcies going in, so about 7% from 2006 to 7. But the real collapse didn't come until well into the crisis. Essentially, the initial bankruptcies are a warning, a canary in the coal mine, but the true collapse takes another year or two as the actual recession drains companies' cash and drives them under. In 2008, that meant a doubling of major bankruptcies in that first year of the actual recession, 2008, followed by yet another doubling the following year, 2009, and then yet another year, 2010, that was almost as bad as 2008. In other words, going by last time, whatever happens in the first year of the crash, you're in for three to four times more bankruptcies by the time it's over. And here we are, worse than 2008, and they're still happy talking about soft landings. So why so much failure so early? Simple. Banks aren't lending. The other day, I did a video on new data saying banks are battening down the hatches, hogging their bailout money instead of lending it out. This is confirmed by small business surveys showing the fastest deterioration in lending since the 2008 crisis. That credit crunch means not only do we get bankruptcies like in any recession, on top of that, we get a lending wall that cuts off even the healthy businesses. Of course, their jobs go down with them. In fact, a recent Bloomberg article said the amount of distressed corporate debt soared fourfold in the past year to $300 billion, meaning hundreds of companies are already swirling down the bankruptcy drain. And by the way, that's up 30% in one month. Bloomberg also warned this $350 billion in debt right on the edge of downgrade, which would cut those companies off from most lending altogether. Confirming from the other side, major banks are now setting aside loss reserves. So Citi doubled theirs. Morgan Stanley quadrupled the money they set aside to cover failed loans. Keep in mind, all of this is before the recession even officially begins. We are still seeing the consumer floating the gig on credit card debt. It is starting to look like the Fed set us up for one hell of a crash by pumping trillions out and then crushing banks in the economy to hide it, potentially delivering a combination credit crunch plus recession that's already taking out jobs at 2008 levels before it has even started. All of this paired with an administration so economically clueless from energy to small business to spending and inflation that the coming jobs recession could drag on for years. With as little as three weeks until the debt ceiling hits, yesterday was a busy day for our nation's leaders beating up on their debt ceiling human shields. First, Treasury Secretary Yellen gave a speech dictating that if the debt ceiling is not raised, meaning if deficits immediately stop, quote, we have to default on something. She immediately defined that something as Social Security and the national debt. In other words, pay us or we starve grandma and then we burn it all down. Now, default is a bluff. I've mentioned in previous videos that governments will bend heaven and earth. It will break every law, bend every rule to avoid durably defaulting on debt because they know that if they default, that would cut them off from future lending. Nobody would lend them anymore. Meaning Yellen's repeated default threats are a fear campaign to get financial markets to panic. Keep in mind, Yellen's job is allegedly not to crash financial markets, which might surprise you given what she's been doing to banks. 
So if the default thread is fake, Yellen's true message boils down to grandma gets it. By the way, Yellen also helpfully noted that Treasury has made literally zero preparations for a debt ceiling because that's how a pro extorts voters. One is reminded of a teenager spending $5,000 on dad's credit card. He asks her to keep it down to $4,000, so she stops eating and calls him from the hospital for a credit limit increase. Not to be outdone on the human shields, Joe Biden's handlers jumped in, put out a tweet warning that if voters are bold enough to want some of their money back. The first things they will cut are, quote, wildland firefighters, national park rangers, and workers who regulate water quality. I've talked about this strategy where governments make cuts as painful as humanly possible. Uh, In Washington, it's called the Washington Monument Strategy or Firemen First, since they like to close national parks and lay off firemen. Biden's people hilariously managed to squeeze both classics into a single tweet while threatening the water supply as a bonus. The only one they missed was school lunches, but perhaps the Twitter character limit saved the children for now. Back in the real world, my colleague EJ Antoni had an article going through the actual budget numbers, finding that federal revenue so far this year was two and a half times higher than Yellen's Social Security and debt payments. In fact, it's been a full trillion more than all of the hostages, so Social Security and debt, Medicare, veterans, and yes, school lunches, firemen, and water inspectors. In other words, they could cover all of the essentials with a couple trillion every year for defense and renaming post offices. No default or starving grandmas required. Sadly, however, grandma and the water supply must take one for the team, so no corrupt handout is left behind. Now, of course, a functioning media would call them out on this, and they wouldn't do it, right? So threatening voters to protect cronies would be a bad look. But then the media has been regime apologists for some time now, and it comes to people like us to get the message out so voters demand more from their leaders. New data from the New York Fed and the widely watched University of Michigan Inflation Survey suggest stagflation is on the way for the first time since the 1970s. First, the official data. On Friday, the New York Fed said its iconic recession model now shows a 68% chance of recession, which is up 10 points on the month. This is the highest level since the horrific 1982 recession that saw nearly 11% unemployment, the worst since the Great Depression, and that lasted three long years. Note, we have had three actual recessions since 1982 that did not even hit today's level on the Fed model. Meanwhile, new numbers from the University of Michigan show Americans are losing faith that the Fed can actually control inflation, as expectations for the next five years inflation jumped to 3.2%. That is the highest in 15 years. Note, it is even higher than during last year's raging inflation that ultimately hit 8.5%. In other words, the public gave the Fed the benefit of the doubt last year, but now they are losing faith that the Fed remains in control. They're starting to bake in higher inflation into the future. And keep in mind, this is after the most aggressive Fed rate hikes in 50 years, hikes that have already crashed banks with more to come. Put it all together, and the data is saying we have got historic odds of a severe recession, paired with the worst inflation since the 1970s, plus, as an added bonus, a 2008-style 
banking crisis. As Joe Biden says, this economy is strong as hell. So why is stagflation happening? The inflation part is easy. The Fed and bankers printed $6 trillion in fresh money, most of which went to finance $7 trillion in federal deficits to buy lockdowns and to feed hungry activists and crony capitalists. The good news is this is very easy to fix, at least in theory, just stop printing money, meaning the Fed stops buying stuff by typing zeros in spreadsheets and using that imaginary money to buy everything in sight, then stop yanking rates down to zero every time the economy tries to clear out the deadwood, which gives us a Japanese-style zombie economy and tees up the next inflation recession cycle to bail out. The simplest, of course, is just end the Fed. As for the recession, some of that comes from the money printing, that inflation recession cycle where easy money from low rates feeds a bunch of crap businesses from WeWork to Dogecoin, and then tighter money wipes them out in a cluster. The rest of it comes from ongoing hits, from regulation, ratcheting up taxes, which screw producers, wipe out entrepreneurs, or scare them off in the first place, and that chase entire industries out of the country to places like China or Mexico. So what happens next? Unless U.S. policy takes a 180, which it won't, the ship is headed for the stagflation iceberg. That would mean continued inflation, continued falling wages, like we've seen these past two years, paired with mass layoffs and soaring bankruptcies. For regular Americans, the key is, number one, protect your savings, so diversify into inflation hedges like gold, build up a cash reserve. You always want cash in a recession, even an inflationary recession. And number two, protect your income, so build skills, nurture your network. If you like your job, work hard to make sure you're indispensable. And if you like your business, keep the shoulder to the wheel. Thanks for listening. Follow to get next week's episode right in your inbox. And I hope to see you on Twitter and Substack. Thank you.